No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What makes a Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day in Cozumel or a tropical adventure in the Mayan ruins with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. The Bowery Boys, 246. Tales from a Tenement, Three Families on the Lower East Side. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Tom Myers. Greg Young is off this week, but we will shortly be joined by a special co-host who will lead us on a rather unique adventure in this week's show, because today we're going to do a little bit of time travel. Now, in our two previous shows, we explored the homes and the mansions of New York's wealthiest residents along Fifth Avenue. In today's show, we'll continue to explore housing in the 20th century, but move far from Fifth Avenue to the Lower East Side and specifically to one building at 103 Orchard Street, which is today part of the Tenement Museum. And when we step inside, we'll be meeting three families who lived there after World War II. Of course, we won't literally be meeting them because they no longer live there, but we'll be getting to know these families by walking through their apartments, which have been faithfully reconstructed, often with their very own furniture, to tell their stories. In several previous episodes, Greg and I have discussed the waves of immigrants who who came by the millions in the 19th century, and many of them settled, at least at first, in tenements, which are apartment buildings that were constructed to really fit as many paying tenants as possible under one roof. And despite attempts by progressive reformers to get the city to regulate their construction and improve conditions, Tenement living, especially in the late 19th century, was notoriously difficult. By the mid-20th century, however, the most serious of those concerns had been addressed, but tenement living was still far from luxurious. However, their inexpensive rents were attractive to the new wave of migrants, immigrants, and refugees who were arriving in the neighborhood. One of these buildings to which they arrived was 103 Orchard Street, and that's where we're headed today. 103 Orchard is a tenement that dates back to 1888, but it's undergone its own changes over the years. We'll hear about the building itself and then head inside to meet the Epsteins, the Saez Velez family, and the Wong family. The Epsteins were Holocaust survivors who moved into the building in the 1950s, the Saez Velez family moved in during the 60s and were led by a mother who left Puerto Rico and worked as a seamstress here. 
and the Wong family, whose mother raised the family while working in Chinatown garment shops, moved in during the 1970s. Today, we'll walk through an apartment that was once home to the Epsteins. However, it's been divided up rather ingeniously into three sections for the three families in order to show us how the other two families from the building lived as well. Don't worry, it'll all be clear when we get there. And it's only possible to meet these families because they're included in an exciting new interactive exhibit at the Tenement Museum. This exhibit, which includes a tour of the apartment, is called Under One Roof and opens to the public this month. We'll be led through today by Annie Polland, the museum's curator for the exhibit. Annie and her team worked for years contacting families, gathering stories, not to mention gathering furniture, housewares, and other accessories in order to recreate the apartments and to tell their remarkable stories. Stories of starting fresh on the Lower East Side. Let's head to 103 Orchard. All right, well, we have arrived on Orchard Street on the Lower East Side, and we're at the Tenement Museum. We're approaching the corner of Delancey and Orchard, where Annie Polland, a curator at the museum, is waiting for us. Hi, Annie. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Looks like a beautiful day for a tour. It's a gorgeous day for a tour. So before we head inside, I was mentioning that maybe you could tell us a little bit about 103 Orchard, the building. Absolutely. So 103 Orchard is actually three buildings that were put together in 1913. So the three individual buildings on Orchard Street were built in 1888 as kind of the traditional dumbbell tenement. And in 1913, a new owner decided to combine them and basically chop off the backs of all three tenements so that he could create room to build a new bank, which would become the Bank of the United States. So this man who was also a former garment manufacturer took the three front halves of Mm -hmm. the tenements Mm -hmm. and kind of put them together to form 103 orchard and switched the entrance from orchard street to delancey street so it becomes also 81 delancey but it's all one building so we should also note that the tenement museum itself is housed today in the building absolutely and the museum shop that many of our listeners will know is the bottom floor of the building we're about to visit exactly if you've been to the tenement museum before on a tour you've gone on tours of 97 orchard street um you would have picked up your tickets for the tour in 103 Orchard Street. Okay. And we're, we're standing outside on the corner now, looking up at it. It's a five-story brick tenement building. You said built in the dumbbell style. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the dumbbell tenements were so named after a law in 1879 that required new tenements built in New York to kind of have an, have an air shaft in it, have a space in between buildings, because what had been happening is that tenements were built to fill the whole width of a lot. What that then right. meant was that there's not enough room for windows. So in order to create room for air, light, ventilation, there was this mandate to create space in between the tenements. So the tenements had to be built in the shape of, if you were looking at it from above, it kind of looked like a, a, a dumbbell, a fat dumbbell. Right. So we're going to head inside and learn about the stories of three different families who came in the middle and later part of the 20th century. Exactly. Come with me. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. We're walking along the Delancey Street side and heading in. Okay, so we're walking up a modern staircase, a modern addition to the building, to the second floor, and we're turning the corner, and looks like we have an old 
An old staircase in front of us. Exactly. This is an old staircase um, restored to look as it would when the families that we're about to talk about when they lived here. And you can hear in the background some sounds. We also created soundscapes with a wonderful sound designer named Jeremy Bloom. Um, and he helped us create soundscapes that would approximate the different eras we're about to explore. Oh, so I'm hearing children. That's, That's not live. That's a recording. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, I know it sounds very real. I keep thinking, like, where is I? You know, even though I know that it's there. And um, what we wanted to be able to convey was the life of the building in the '50s, '60s, and '70s. So he created three separate soundscapes for us that worked with archival materials, even. Um, he obtained somehow recordings of traffic on Orchard Street from the 50s wow. and the 60s that were woven into all of this. So, you know, these staircases were really important for the three families and all the families who lived here because these staircases were where they're going to meet other people. This is the staircases where they're going to see their new neighbors, where they're going to run into the super, where you're going to be hearing snippets of conversations in various languages. These are the staircases also where you're carrying up your, your groceries. So we wanted to make sure that the staircases and the hallways, the shared spaces, were part of our interpretation. Very cool. Okay, we have arrived on the third floor. And we're looking out into an air shaft from yeah, the third floor. Exactly. So this is kind of what, what happened when the buildings were combined. And you see a fairly large air shaft. And the air shafts figured pretty prominently in the memories of all the different families. From each family, we got stories of air shafts. So um, Bella would talk about yelling to her friend Rosetta de Benedetto. Her, you know, So you have this Jewish girl calling to her Italian Catholic friend through the air shaft, smelling the spaghetti sauce of Rosetta's mother being, you know, made. In the 1950s. In the 1950s, exactly. In the 1960s, Jose Velez, who was the son of a Puerto Rican migrant, Ramonita Saez, he would talk about, you know, if you wanted to find out what your neighbor was making for dinner, you just opened up your window and you smelled it. And what he recalled <laughs> is that in the late 60s and early 70s, the smells got better. As more Chinese immigrants moved in, he liked the smell of that cooking. So he kind of <laughs> noted that. And then um, Allison Wong, who grew up here, um, she moved with her family in 1969 to this building and grew up in the 70s, remembered that somehow this air shaft was magical in the sense that when it was really hot in the summer, if you went to the base of the air shaft, it was a lot cooler. Hmm. Conversely, in the winter, it was somehow warmer. You couldn't live your life in this building without interacting with these neighbors who were coming from very different places, speaking different languages, observing different religions. But these hallways, these air shafts, these are spaces where you kind of get a sense of the shared community that they're creating. And you just mentioned three different sets of people. So you mentioned Bella Epstein in the 1950s mm -hmm. and and the son of Ramonita Saez in the 1960s and then the Wong children in the 70s. Exactly. So three families uh, that lived in this building, not necessarily in the same apartment. Exactly. So these families were part of what was becoming a very diverse Lower East Side. So by 1960, the Lower East Side is one of the most diverse neighborhoods in New York. And it's about, uh, by 1960, 26% Puerto Rican, 7% African American. It's only like 3% Chinese, but by 1970, that would become 11% Chinese. So mm -hmm. the rest of the so-called white population were Jewish and Italian immigrants and their children. So you have this all these languages. And so you have these people kind of overlapping on the Lower East Side. So 
the families move to the Lower East Side and then move to these buildings at separate times, but share space and some of them overlap. So it's confusing. But also with the way that is perhaps is, is to look at this diagram that shows this apartment we've recreated. It's apartment number seven. And Annie is now holding up a diagram in front of me of, of the floor plan, right, of 103 Orchard. And in the middle um, apartment, looks like it's one family apartment, but I see three family names on it. Exactly. What we did is we took the liberty for the purpose of the exhibition interpretation is to divide that one very large tenement apartment. It's over 800 square feet. We divided it into three sections so that we could tell three family stories. So we didn't want to just pick one family story. Um, We didn't want to have three different tours. We wanted to have one tour that allowed us to look at three different families at one time. So the first third of it is the Epstein family told to us from the perspective of Bella Epstein, now Seligson, um, talking about what it was like for her family when they moved in in 1956. Okay. The next section you can see is the Bella's family. Um, and they lived in apartment 15, two floors above. But again, for the sake of convenience, we moved the interpretation to the same apartment. They move into the building in the 1960s, although they arrive and are living in another tenement on the Lower East Side in the 1950s. It's complicated. <laughs> and we end up using this diagram quite a lot to explain the Wong family overlaps with the Sa'as family. They live in an, an entirely different apartment unit, but we recreate the daughter's um, bedroom in the apartment in this last section, the blue section, and they move into the building in 69 and are here in the 70s and 80s. And finally, in a separate gallery, adjoining the apartment, we've recreated a garment factory from the 1980s. All three of these families worked in the garment industry. So we wanted to be able to, at some point in the exhibit, focus on what it meant to work in the garment industry. Okay, so to recap, we're going to head in and first we'll be visiting the Epsteins in the 1950s and then pass into the Saez Velez family from the 1960s and then the Wong family from the 1970s. You got it. And as we walk over to the door, I'm just curious how many... How many families lived in this apartment building? So over time, I think we've estimated somewhere like around 10,000 people perhaps that lived in this building over time. What we focused on when we acquired the building in 2007 was researching the families who lived here in the 20th century because we knew we wanted to focus on, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, that, that era. And there's less turnover at that time. So whereas at 97 Orchard, when we looked at the lives of people who came in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you have a lot of movement in and out of the building, in mm-hmm. and out of the building. Whereas here, by the 1940s and 50s and 60s, people tended to stay a little bit longer here. Well, you mentioned that the apartment was 800 square feet, mm-hmm. the Epstein's apartment. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty big and comfortable. This was a coup, I think, to get this apartment, to get this apartment line, whether it was apartment 7 or 11 or apartment Mm -hmm. 15. This was a huge apartment for the Lower East Side at that time. And the rent was fairly low because this was still considered a neighborhood that was marginal to Chinatown. It was a neighborhood that in the 50s, when it was part of the Jewish Lower East Side, so many Jewish families had moved to Brooklyn and moved out of the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. Stores were still here, but there weren't a lot of Jewish families with young kids like the Epsteins living here. So it wasn't desirable for them. No, it wasn't. This was not, the Lower East Side was not the in neighborhood as it might be today. Um, And so even when it was, you know, the height of Chinatown in the 70s and 80s, Orchard Street was still somewhat 
marginal to the heart of Chinatown. And so these apartments had slightly lower rent, therefore, you know, attracting families that were looking for a nicer size apartment. None of the families lived here first. In other words, they were all living somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Then they heard about it. They scored. They scored. Exactly. They scored. All right. Let's let's head in. Okay, we just turned a corner. We're walking down a tiled hallway. When I brought Bella here, and Bella now lives in Florida, she hadn't been in the building since 1961 when her family moved out. They moved in in 1956. She was about eight years old when they moved in, and they had been living on Allen Street, and then they found out about this apartment move in. And when I brought her here um, a few years ago, she hadn't been back in 50 years. And she looked at this mezuzah, and a mezuzah is the kind of ornamental case for a, a holy scroll written in Hebrew that many Jews put on their doorposts. Certainly observant right. Jews do. Annie is pointing at the door frame here. There is a, a mezuzah, mm-hmm. and they would touch this, or they still do touch this. Yeah, I mean, it's tradition to kind of, as you um, enter, to, uh, you can kiss your hands and then touch the mezuzah. It's a, a form of kind of respect and honoring the mezuzah. The mezuzah technically is kind of there to remind you of your of the observances and the commandments that you're supposed to uphold. People often view it as something protecting the home in some way. But when Bella saw it, she said, this is it. This is the mezuzah that my parents put up. And it was brave of them to have done so, she recalled, because they had been persecuted for being Jewish. They were survivors of the Holocaust. They had been in concentration camps. You know, every ounce of their identity had been taken away from them. You know, their family had been taken away from them, and they were put in these camps because they were Jewish, they survive and they come to America and they, they post this. And I think, again, she saw that as a sign of bravery. She also viewed it as a sign of faith that she has and her parents had had in this new country that allow for an efflorescence or a variety of religions to be apparent. Um, they weren't afraid to put this mezuzah up on the Lower East Side, even though they were in a building that was not entirely Jewish. Wow. Right, we've pushed the door open and we've walked straight in. We have a small pink colored uh, bathroom on the left with a big bathtub, pink walls, a sink. I'm stepping into the bathroom uh, (laughs) where the soundscape continues because I guess there would have been an open window here. So we'd be getting the noise from the other neighbors. We're stepping out into the entry hall and Annie has just opened up a wardrobe closet that's built into the wall, and inside are about a dozen small dresses for little girls. Absolutely. So, you know, when Bella and her sister move in, they're about eight and four years old, and they had, this was their closet. You know, there was basically one big closet for the whole apartment, and she, this, this is the same closet she had, and she, when she opened it, it was empty, right? Because we hadn't yet right. recreated it. She opened up and she goes, I can see my dresses. I can see my skirts. And so we had to kind of recreate this for her. Similarly, she remembered, you know, the rotary phone that's on a secretary here. There's a telephone on a small desk just next to the closet. Um, and right next to that is a coat rack. Uh, you have a gentleman's hat hanging there, a, a lady's purse and yellow coat. And we step into the dining room, which is painted mint green. And the lighting is very dim, actually. I guess I'm noticing that there isn't any sunlight. Yeah, I mean, right here we have a curtain over the air shaft window. There wouldn't have been a lot of sunlight in the place. But what Bella recalls is that her mother wanted the home's 
and the wall to look freilich, to look joyful in Yiddish, happy. And so she selected these colors, which she thought kind of brightened up the place. And so this is the dining room, the this family is, dining room. This is the family dining room. And I think what we did here is we hung a picture of Kalman and Rivka Epstein, Bella's parents. And they were from Poland. Kalman was born in 1903 in Kielce, Poland. Rivka was born in 1920 in a village outside of Ludz, Poland. And when the war started, they were uh, taken away from their families. They were ultimately sent to concentration camps. She was in Theresienstadt and later Auschwitz. He was in Bergen-Belsen and later Auschwitz. And they survived. You know, two-thirds of European Jewry was destroyed. A third of world Jewry was destroyed and killed. But they were among 250,000 survivors that found themselves in displaced persons camps in Germany. They met specifically at a displaced persons camp called Zielsheim outside of Frankfurt, Germany. And essentially, these displaced persons didn't want to be displaced persons. They wanted to go places. They mm -hmm. wanted to go to Palestine, what would become the state of Israel. But at that time, it was ruled by the British. And they wanted to come to the United States. But the United States had on the books a law dating from 1924 that really made it difficult for most people in the world to get to this country. So unless you were from Western Europe, it was very hard to get in. So those quota laws were still in effect. And people in the country at the time were nervous about changing those laws. A Gallup poll showed in December of 1945 that only about 5% of the country said it would be okay to change the immigration laws. However, President Harry S. Truman passes an executive order in December of 1945 that says that the United States has an obligation to cooperate in the alleviation of the misery that these refugees mm. had suffered. And even though he was he couldn't change the quotas themselves. What he could do is say, within these quotas, we're going to prioritize these refugees and we're going to expedite the granting of visas to them. So under that executive order, about 23,000 refugees come through and Bella's parents are part of that wave that come through and they arrive in April of 1947. But Bella's parents had met in this displaced persons camp and they had been married prior to the, the war to other people. Right. And so sadly, their spouses had died in the war. And, and children? And children. Um, Coleman had a young son who had died. And like many of the survivors, they tended to be not too young, because if you were too young, right, but you, you, they were able to work and that helped them survive, you know. And so you have a lot of youngish people who've survived but have no families. And in these displaced persons camp, they meet other people like them. And there's such a strong impetus to create a new family. You have no family and you want to create a new family. And so people paired up. And Kalman and Rivka were part of this trend in the displaced persons camps in those years. They had the highest birth rates of anywhere else in the world mm. because, again, this impetus to create life anew. And so when did they come to the U.S.? They come to the U.S. in April of 1947. And a year later, Bella is born, their first daughter, an American girl. Okay, so we've just moved into the adjoining room, which is painted pink and looks to me like a girl's room. We have two beds, uh, a record player in the corner, a little desk, uh, some construction paper, some scissors and crayons, and children's books, a map of the United States hanging on the wall, and some pajamas hanging on hooks on the door. Uh, 
was this Bella's room? This was Bella's room, and she shared it with her sister, Blima. And when she first came into this room, she went to the window, and she yelled, Rosetta. And I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) But Rosetta was her best friend, her Italian Catholic friend that lived in the building that she would play with. And so she had these memories of growing up in a home where Yiddish was the dominant language. You know, her parents, when they first arrived, took English classes, but like many adults who arrive as adults, it's hard to learn a new language and they go to work right away. They both work in the garment industry. And then Bella's mom raises them and her dad works for his uncle in his uncle's dress shop. So, you know, clothes and dresses and garments are part of this Lower East Side world in which they're growing up. And as well, Yiddish is the dominant language. You'd be hearing that on the radio. Their newspapers the parents would be reading would be in Yiddish. They send Bella to a Jewish girl's school in the neighborhood. Um, But again, because she's growing up in a very diverse Lower East Side, she's meeting friends from different backgrounds. And her best friend in the building is Rosetta. Her best friend at Forsyth Park is a little girl named Barbara, who's African-American, and she plays checkers with her. Um, And probably in the park, she would have also run into Jose and Andy Velas, um, who we're going to talk about next. Right. So she's speaking Yiddish at home with her parents Mm -hmm. over dinner in the other room. Mm Mm-hmm. And then speaking English with all of her school friends. Exactly. And the other language that becomes really important to her is the language of popular culture. Her father brings home a television set and neighbors come over to watch Killer Kowalski, a wrestler, because you don't need to know English to understand what's happening with wrestling. And I think similarly for the kids, music becomes really important. And so what we have here is a record player that is supposed to approximate the record player that Bella remembers her father bringing home in 19, around 1957, 1958. And this is a recording that we play on the record of Bella talking about the the record. Oh, how cool. Do you want to hear it? Sure. My father bought a record player that um, he used to play Yussel Rosenblatt albums on. Yussel Rosenblatt was a famous cantor, and he would say, oh, a stimme, a stimme, that means a voice, a voice, and I'd say, okay, fine. And then when my father wasn't using the record player, um, I had gotten my mother to buy me a record, and it was Paul Anker. Oh, please stay by me, Diana. I'm so young and you're so old. This, my darling, I've been told. That was the song. It was played more in my house than I think anywhere else in the world. That was it. That made me an American. little given, Paul Anka. Yes, and I've given two tours today, and in both tours, um, visitors have sung along to the Diana song. I guess they also were touched by <laughs> by the popular culture of the 1950s. And I guess that's so interesting. It brings up another point that here she has this thing in common with so many other girls her age around the country, and yet there's something that her family's been through that's so catastrophic, that is so unusual at the same time for girls her age, Did they talk about that at all? Is that something that she talked about either with her parents or outside with other people? That's a great question. And what we know from Bella, and all of this is is based on Bella's memories, is that for the most part, her parents did not talk about what they had been through. You know, in her interpretation, they wanted to shield their children from what they had been through. They didn't want to burden them with the horrific memories they had. And so growing up, it wasn't talked about directly. She would, you know, her father had the numbers, the tattoos 
on his arm that Auschwitz had had branded upon him. And, you know, as she goes older, she starts to understand what that means. But it was not talked about directly. And it wasn't until uh, she was older that her mother especially told her what had happened. Okay, well, we're about to leave the Epsteins and head into the 1960s to visit the Saez Velez family. We'll jump to the 60s after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. All right, well, we're back, and we have actually just walked through a door leading from the Epstein's dining room into the kitchen of a different family in a different era. It's painted pink. Uh, Things look definitely a little bit more 60s in here. There is a fluorescent light overhead. 
There's a 1960s era refrigerator in the corner, a blender, a toaster oven, you know, post-war conveniences are on display. Hanging also notably on the wall is a pendant, a souvenir of Puerto Rico. We have joined another family. Absolutely. So Ramanita Rivera um, moves to New York City in the mid-1950s with two little boys, Jose and Andy Velas. She's divorced, so she has a different name than the boys. Her name is Ramanita Rivera. And she comes like many Puerto Ricans. About half a million Puerto Ricans come between 1940 and 1960 to New York City, and they're coming for work. And in many respects, they've been recruited to come here for work. So the garment manufacturers that had for many years depended on the labor of Eastern European and Southern European workers find that by the 1940s, a lot of their workers are retiring, you know, they're dying, and there are no new Southern or Eastern European immigrants to take their place because of that 1924 quota law. Mm. So what do they do? They go to Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States. And it has been since 1917. Absolutely. And so they then recruit Puerto Ricans to come and work in the garment industries. And Ramanita had worked sewing gloves in Puerto Rico, but kind of answers this call and comes over. She makes her way to the Lower East Side. We imagine she had friends or neighbors, cousins perhaps that already were on the Lower East Side, and that's how she got here. She finds a job in a garment shop right away and will work there for um, almost 30 years. And so she comes with her two sons, who are how old when they get here? Five and six. And so they come over, and um, she's a single mom. And so she goes to work. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of our visitors have been saying, like, oh, I thought women don't go back to work until the 1970s and Gloria Steinem. But working-class women have always worked. So in the 1950s in New York, you have a lot of Puerto Rican women. You have a lot of African-American women also working in garment shops. And so that's Ramanita. She's part of this important wave. And yet she still has to figure out how to raise her sons as she's doing this work. So Ramanita and her sons move here um, in 1955. When did they actually move into 103 Orchard? They move into 103 Orchard in 1964. And by that point, Ramanita's remarried. She's met a fellow Puerto Rican uh, at a bodega on Eldridge Street where they were living. And he was a veteran of the Korean War and at that time worked for Pan American. And so they get the airline, the airline. Exactly. And, you know, airlines are so important because airlines have facilitated this migration of Puerto Ricans Mm. to New York. Also, the airlines are important because they help maintain ties as Puerto Ricans go back to visit the island and and come back again. And so, you know, whereas the Epsteins were never going to go back to where they had come from, the Puerto Rican migrants living on the Lower East Side could maintain a more direct connection to to where they had come from. And a fairly affordable one, too, right? They could get some pretty cheap seats to go back to the island. Exactly. And especially because Frank worked for Pan Am, they were able to get extremely cheap tickets. But here we are standing in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. What is the significance of the kitchen well, to this family? I mean, I think the tenement kitchen is so important for thinking about how the mothers navigated their role, both as caretakers of the home, mm-hmm. primary nurturers of the children, and also, you know, wage earners. And so Jose tells this amazing story of what he would do after school. And you can hear Jose in our kitchen. My mother would work a lot. Believe me a lot. And before she left in the morning, my brother and I, we had to keep a schedule. She will just get the beans, add the little water. That actually softens them up. 
So when we came from school, we switch on the burner very low, or my brother or I, either one. And when my mother comes from work, 4, 4.30, the beans will be done. And if we burn the beans, we'll be in trouble, okay? What's kind of neat about that is we asked Andy what he did after school. And he mm -hmm. said the same thing. He told us, you know, sometimes siblings will have different accounts over what happened. But in terms of this, I mean, I think this memory of the mother and the responsibilities they had were so powerful that even though these men are now in their late 60s, they're still kind of afraid of burning the beans. Hmm. And Ramanita would have had to navigate this world in which she had to at once be at work in order to support her boys, in order to, you know, have the union benefits that would give the boys health insurance, um, but also somehow control what they were doing after school, even though she wasn't physically here. And in that recording, we get a sense of the way in which the pot of beans becomes the babysitter of the boys. Mm -hmm. If she gets home from work and the beans aren't done, she knows that they, they didn't come home after school on time. The beans are keeping track. Exactly. So we're moving from the kitchen and into the front living room, uh, which I gather is exactly as Ramanita would have kept it. That is to say, flawlessly. Um, and in fact, there's a there's a photo of her on the phone in a beautiful blue dress, uh, leaning up against a 1960s era television with a beautiful vase or chalice <laughs> on top of it um, with some kittens dipping their heads inside of it. I cannot believe that I'm looking at the same thing right behind you. You you found that chalice? Well, um, Pamela Keach, who is our furnishings curator, who's been the curator for the Tenement Museum forever, did this magic. I mean, she's an artist. And her ability to kind of locate these items piece by piece, if you look into that vase or, or chalice, whatever it is, you see that there's a ceramic mouse that the cats are looking for. Oh, I see it, So this yes. was kind of a mix and match piece special to the 1960s that she located you know found that we found the tv um some of the items are ramanitas that the family gave us the elephant that you can see in the corner the boy scout award was andy's um both he and jose were members of a boy scout troop in little italy so this apartment is this kind of mix and match of items that really belong to the family, but more so items that were found to recreate the photos that were given to us by the family. And I think the biggest draw in this apartment, well, I'll let you guess. What do you think is the thing that resonates most with people? So I'm, I'm looking at a family Bible resting on a, on a small standover between the windows. And that's lovely. But the first thing I noticed when I walked into the living room was that the plush uh, sofa and sitting chair are both covered in plastic protectors. Yeah, I think this is the thing that resonates with our visitors the most. <laughs> they could be Chinese, they could be Puerto Rican, they could be African-American, they could be Jewish, Italian. Everyone had a great aunt or a grandparent <laughs> that had a plastic covered couch. And one of the things we let visitors do is sit down on these couches. Oh, can I? So, uh, yes. Okay, I gotta get a recording of this. <laughs> wow, it really lets out quite a puff there. Oh yeah. Why don't you join me? <laughs> um, well, you know, they do wipe up nicely. Exactly. And, you know, I think this shows also how Ramanita had a parlor that she wanted people to share. Mm -hmm. So every weekend she invited friends and family. She would cook for them. This was a living room that was going to be beautiful. It was going to be meticulous, but it was going to be lived in. And so you can imagine the family gathering to celebrate the boys' graduation in 1968. And we have a picture of them here. 
Jose and Andy in 1968 graduated. Picture was hanging on the wall right above uh, the sofa. Two photos, one a graduation photo uh, of the two boys, but then also one of them in military gear. Exactly. So just a week or so after Andy graduates from high school, he receives a letter recruiting him to the Mm. army. So he shows up. He's told when he's supposed to show up in July. He has just a few weeks and shows up and takes the test and passes into the to the Air Force. And he'll be serving the country for the next few years. And this is Vietnam. This is Vietnam. Yes. Wow. So the boys are very much present in the room. Uh, Religion is present in the room Uh, above the Bible up against the wall um, is a plate uh, with the Pope's face upon it. Um, I take it they were a Catholic family. They were indeed. And so, you know, Ramanita establishes ties to St. Teresa's Church right from the beginning. And she's going there almost on a daily basis. And every Sunday, the boys remember getting dressed up and going to church, going to services. That's where her sons will get married. The church is central to her life. Moreover, her granddaughters remember, you know, her doing the rosary. So her Catholicism was extremely important to her. So interesting because, I mean, here we are in a living room that, by the way, has also been wallpapered, which is much different from the previous rooms we've been in, which have really just been painted plaster. Yeah. And so as the, as the time goes on, there are more decorative elements accessible to them. Um, also, I should note that when Ramanita marries Frank Saez, now you have a family with two incomes coming in. And by the way, we're sitting here on the sofa, plastic covered, and I feel like I'm hearing... Orchard Street on a summer afternoon, yet I look over and the windows are firmly shut. So what am I hearing? You're hearing the second soundscape, the one that kind of serves to transition us from the 1950s to the 1960s. We're trying to recreate the sounds that were remembered by Jose and Andy and um, their wives as they told us the stories of what it was like to grow up on the Lower East Side. And I think one of the things that's important about when we get to the 70s and 80s is that there's an increase in crime in the city and on the Lower East Side. And so people react to that in different ways. Jose's wife, Magdalia, says, you know, when we have kids, we're moving back to the island. Hmm. And Jose reluctantly, almost kicking and screaming, goes back to live in Puerto Rico with Magdalia in the early 80s. Um, Because of the crime here on the Lower East Side. Yeah, and because she wanted to kind of raise her children in a place that she thought was more child-friendly. But Andy, on the other hand, he and his family stay here. They feel comfortable here. Ramanita stays here. Even after she retires from the garment industry and has the ability to go back to the island, doesn't. And her granddaughter, Andrea, tells us it's because uh, in her estimation, Ramanita was a, had a fiery personality and the city was fiery. It was what she <laughs> wanted. And I think, you know, when I think about it too, I think about here's this woman who came with nothing and she helps establish a Puerto Rican community on the Lower East Side. She becomes a member of the union. She raises her kids. Um, she has to fight. She's a fighter. And then, you know, she she's kind of fought so many battles here to raise her family and to create this nice place that this is where she wants to be. She's not leaving. No. And how long would Ramanita stay in the building in 103 Orchard? A half century. Wow. (laughs) I mean, she really, if we think of all the people whose lives we know and stories we know in both of the tenements we interpret, Mm -hmm. Ramanita is ranks up there in terms of having the longest time spent in the tenement building. And that has effects. Um, People remember Ramanita. Uh, Everyone we interviewed who lived in this building over time remembers Ramanita. And um, in particular, there's a great memory by Kevin Wong, um, 
And Kevin was born in this building in 1970. And he remembers Ramanita and he referred to her as the matriarch of the building. Hmm. So, you know, when you think about her arriving as a young mother with really nothing, a stranger to the Lower East Side, in that half century's time, she's become almost the greeter to the Lower East Side. She's become an established presence. It's amazing to think of what she saw and how she saw the neighborhood change as well. Yeah, and so even at the time, as we talked earlier, that crime was rising, for her, it was still her Lower East Side. She saw where someone outside of the neighborhood might have looked around and seen some old stores, some you know abandoned tenements. They might have seen the crime on the street. She walks through the streets. She notices those things, but she also knows, oh, behind that tenement is my friend. You right. know, in that store is the grocer that I know, and there's the church that I go to. And so her neighborhood networks are really important for creating a sense of community on the Lower East Side that, you know, at a time that many people had abandoned the Lower East Side. Right. Now, you mentioned the Wong family, mm-hmm. uh, who grew up in the building, and they're the third family that's covered in the exhibit, and their apartment Uh, or a bit of it has been recreated in a room just off of the living room here. So we're going to head through these big French doors um, and into a bedroom in the Wong's apartment. Again, it feels a little bit like time travel. You just sort of like step through the wall and you're in a different time um, and place. But here we are in a bedroom uh, with blue walls. We have one twin bed on the side, bunk beds on the other side, a desk with a with a portable Smith Corona blue typewriter, a women's bowling trophy, and my favorite, a tab cola glass uh, sitting on the desk. So we're in a bedroom. We're in a bedroom. It's the 1970s. And this is where we use this as a point of departure to talk about the Wong family. And Mrs. Wong arrives on the Lower East Side in 1965 with two daughters, Yat Ping and Yat Fong. And she arrives from where? She arrives from Hong Kong. And her husband has come before her and has kind of established himself and then sent for his family. So they come to the Lower East Side, but you know she has this great story about en route. They're switching planes and they're in Japan. She's just with the two girls. Um, She's carrying Yat Fong, the baby. She's holding the hand of Yat Ping. She has a rice cooker, a camera. Um, You know, and I know you have a baby, so you know what it's like to travel with a baby and be in an airport. She's thinking, what can I shed? And she has this bag of um, mooncakes that she's brought over for her father-in-law, who's here. And, you know, the father-in-law has like, bring me some Chinese culture, bring me good cooking. And he even has paid for her to take Chinese cooking classes in Hong Kong before she comes. So she decides she's going to get rid of the mooncakes and throw them away. But her daughter, Yat Ping, who's seven, says, no, mommy, no, I will carry the mooncakes. The mooncakes. Exactly. You know, and I think about my daughter, who doesn't really want to help out. But if I were about to throw away a bag of cupcakes, she'd also probably say, oh, no, 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 I'll carry it. But in all seriousness, Yat Ping is going to assume such an important role in this family's life as they adapt to a new city. So they're moving to the neighborhood from Hong Kong. And which language are they speaking? They're speaking Cantonese. And and I should say, too, that um, Mrs. Wong and Mr. Wong had lived in a village in Toishan in the Canton region in southern China. Mm -hmm. And so they made the move first to Hong Kong and then, you know, to New York. And this was fairly typical of the time because you could really only leave China if you were leaving through Hong Kong, which is part of the U.K., 
So they moved to the Lower East Side. They moved to the Lower East Side in 1965. Oh, and I should note that 1965 is an incredibly important year in immigration history and immigration legislation because it's the year that Congress overturns the 1924 Johnson-Reed Act, which had imposed such you know strong restrictions against immigration. And they open up the doors to immigration. And this is really important in Chinese immigration history because the Chinese in particular had been blocked and restricted ever since 1882. Um, 1882. 1882, right. And so, you know, in the 1940s, this Chinese Exclusion Act loosens up a little bit. So they create a quota, but the quota is only 105 people per year. And so, um, and also after World War II, there is a War Brides Act that allows um, Chinese servicemen to bring over their wives and families. So you start to have some growth in the Chinese population. You also have paper sons. You have people who are able to pass down papers to people who aren't necessarily their biological sons. And that allows for some um, growth in the Chinese population in U.S. over time, but it's 1965 that things really change. And for the first time, you have significant Chinese immigration to the United States. And so the Wongs are part of a Chinatown that's going to be growing and it's booming. And it's a world that is shaped for many of the people by the garment industry. And then the Wong family moves into the building, 103 Orchard, in the late 60s. And what were the parents doing for work? So the dad works First in a laundry, and then he's going to work in the restaurant business. And this is quite typical mm-hmm. for Chinese men to work in the restaurant industry. What it means, though, is he's going to work at night for the most part. And mm-hmm. so it's a cash business. He's bringing home cash, but there's no benefits. And that then pushes Mrs. Wong to go to work in the garment industry, which is really the, the one industry that, first of all, that Chinese women can get work in. Second of all, it important because it provides benefits. A lot of the garment industry is unionized by that point. So by virtue of going to work in the garment shops, she's soon able to join the union and provide insurance for her family. Interesting. So here's a second family now out of these three families who are being employed, women being employed and members of the union in the garment district in the neighborhood. Yeah. And both, you know, we talked about Ramanita being a member of the union and Mrs. Wong was also a member of the same union, the ILGWU Local 2325. They both speak of the union with such such admiration. And Mm -hmm. I, I think it was an incredibly important network for just not, not just those women, but many of the women who worked in the garment industry. Now, what's interesting is that that there's one more door to walk through here in the exhibit, um, and that takes us really through the wall. So I don't think that there had been a door there before. There hadn't. Right. Very good observational skills. <laughs> exactly. That was a kind of, we, we, we were playing with things here. So mm-hmm. everything I've told you thus far, we've talked about things that happened in this building. These are families who lived in this building. And that takes us to a different space. So why don't we walk through that wall, through that magic wall, into another building now, into a room uh, that has six sewing machines lined up in the middle of the room, and it looks like a recreation of a garment shop uh, in the neighborhood, I take it. Exactly. So there were no garment shops in this building, per se. The garment shops were spread throughout Lower Manhattan in Chinatown and Soho, um, up into the Lower East Side, and there were, by the 1980s, over 500 of them. In this neighborhood? In this neighborhood. And so... Also at the time, about 20,000 women were working in these garment shops. 
And when you look at, you know, Chinatown families, six out of 10 Chinatown families had a member of their family working in the garment shops, usually the mother. So every family we interviewed who lived in this building and Chinese families that we interviewed who lived on the Lower East Side all spoke of the centrality of the garment shop. And we realized we couldn't really tell the story unless we told the story of the garment shops because they were really inextricably tied into the family life. So Mrs. Wong goes to work, but she's going to work in order to support her kids. And once she's at work, she's going to see, you know, other children at work as well. Wait, she'd see children at work? Well, yeah, the children weren't necessarily working, but... Because there was a dearth of daycare options and childcare, a lot of the women had no choice but to bring their kids with them or pick them up after school and bring them back to the shop. Mrs. Wong did not have to do that because her in-laws lived in the neighborhood and they were able to watch the kids after mm. school. But she uh, herself would spend a good part of her day in this garment shop. And so we interviewed her. We interviewed other women who worked in the shops. And we wanted our visitors to have the same experience of hearing directly from the garment workers. So we embedded their stories on these sewing machines and in different elements of this actual shop so that people could see and hear the stories from the women themselves. And this is a room that quite literally comes alive um, as you as you touch the sewing machines or touch the fabric. Uh, there are videos that pop up. There are projections on the wall. There are audio recordings uh, that play, bringing to life what a garment shop in Chinatown was like in the 1970s and 80s. Um, but here we are in the end of 2017, and I am left with that lingering question of what happened to the garment shops, because I sense that some are still around. I remember, I mean, I moved in in 1997, and I would see many garment shops, uh, the hum of the sewing machines coming from upper floors, Many of those have been replaced by condos, and obviously other street-level places have been replaced by hipster restaurants and cafes. Uh, but what has become of these places, and are there still any unionized shops in the neighborhood? Excellent question. And I also remember when I first moved to New York in the 90s, and giving walking tours, for example, in this neighborhood, one of the things we would run into. You couldn't mm -hmm. help but run into signs of the garment shop, whether it was, you know, banks of clothes being uh, whisked out oh, of yeah. windows along um, kind of zip lines into trucks right. that would be whisked away to the garment district. So the steam coming out of buildings yeah. as well. Yeah. So what happened was the garment industry in Chinatown boomed in the 1970s and 1980s. The kind of heyday was the 1980s. And what starts to take its toll is globalization, the movement of garment shops and the production to Asia and other parts of the world. And so it gets harder and harder in the 1990s, and fewer and fewer garment shops are operating at full capacity. And the kind of the final nail on the coffin is 9-11. So we often think of 9-11 as happening, you know, lower Manhattan and the Twin Towers. And that, of course, is the primary story. But there were reverberations of 9-11 that directly affected Chinatown. One of the things you might remember is that the roads were blocked off. Right. Certain... You had to show ID to get back into even your own neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so what had been such a vital part connecting Chinatown to the garment industry in Midtown and on to the distribution centers and um, department stores across the country were the roads and the trucks that would, you know, come and pick up the cloth, the right. finished product, and, and bring it on. And therefore, when that closed off, 
a lot of the garment shops shifted production to shops in China and never really fully came back. So mm. Mrs. Wong's last day of work in the garment industry was September 10th. 2001 and then she took an early retirement because there was no work for her available in the garment shop wow and i have one more thing to show you this is a photo we took of the families who all came together um to see one another on july 6th this summer um and we took them to see the apartments we had recreated their homes she this just projected on the wall a group photograph of 10 people uh lined up in front of the museum happy faces all around and these are the three families? These are the three families. So we see Mrs. Wong and her eldest daughter, Yat Ping. Um, right in the middle, we have Bella Epstein Seligson, uh, who now lives in Miami with her husband, who she's pictured with, and her son, Jacob, um, and three of her granddaughters. And, you know, again, it's funny to think about her youngest granddaughter as the age she was when, mm. you know, when she moved into the building. And she was able to show her grandchildren her childhood bedroom, which is something that most people don't have that opportunity no. to do. And Jose uh, and his wife, Migdalia, visiting from Puerto Rico. It's an amazing photo because it looks like a family photo. Yeah, it does. It does. I didn't think about it that way, but it does look like a family photo. And I think there is something significant about these people who have come from different places in the world, speaking different languages, observing different religions, um, yet all made their homes in tenements, um, all experienced the garment industry in one way or another, and all feeling like American identity is about hard work, it's about what you do for the next generation, and it's about immigration. But it leaves me wondering, you know, all of these other tenements that we walk by on Orchard and Ludlow and Hester and Grant, what can we learn uh, from these buildings? What can we learn from those tenements that still exist? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one thing that struck me as I was working on the exhibits and interviewing the families is how often there's this dominant narrative of wanting to get away from the tenements, wanting to move out of the Lower East Side, almost as if the American dream is achieved beyond the walls or beyond the borders of the neighborhood. But in working on this exhibit, one of the things that struck me is how much there was a value to these families on the neighborhood, how there was something about staying in place, staying in the tenements, in some ways schooled people in coexistence, right? You shared a sh common economic background by virtue of the fact that you're living in the same building, mm -hmm. and so you're kind of in that same boat. But at the same time, the shared hallways, the shared staircases provide these opportunities to meet people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. And so you can talk about pluralism in a college class. Legislators can debate what it means to be part of an American society. But I would argue that the tenements and the stories of ordinary people give us a wonderful lens and in some ways like our, our true potential as a, as a country. Well, thank you so much for taking us through uh, the new exhibit that has just opened at the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side. It's called Under One Roof, and it's the story of three families. We've been walking through the exhibit with Annie Polland. Uh, the curator for this exhibit, who spent years putting this thing together. Thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. You can see photos from the exhibit on our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. We want to thank our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. And we want to thank you for joining us. For more on this exhibit, also go to the Tenement Museum's website, which is Tenement.org. And on their website, tenement.org, if you click on new exhibit, you can take a virtual tour yourself through the exhibit under one roof. Thank you for joining us. Greg will be back next week. Have a great week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.